Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent media and politics podcast. We're joined for another housing episode by Jackie Paul and Jade Kake. Welcome to the cast, both of you. Oh, Tina, Tina Hey, I just um, immediately want to hand it over uh, to each of you. Maybe uh, just starting with you, Jade. Um, we haven't had you on the cast before. Just to uh, introduce yourself, uh, let people know what you do. Um, so they've got a, a good idea of where you're coming from. Oh, tēnā koutou, ko Jay Kakatoko ingoa. Uh, he uri a hau nō Ngāpohi te arawa te whakatohia. Uh, kei whangarei a hau e noko ana. Kou he uh, kai hoa hoa whare, uh, kai tuhutuhi, me kai hapai hoki. Um, so kia ora koutou and thank you very much for the invitation. My name is Jay Kake. Um, I wear a few too many hats like uh, a few other people in this room. Um, but I run a Kaupapa Māori design studio based in Whangarei called Matakohe Architecture and Urbanism. And we do architectural design and, and urban design mahi. And then um, on the side, which is probably a bit of an extravagant hobby, is that I'm also really interested in housing policy and economics. So I do provide a bit of policy advice to, um, you know, political parties and central government agencies. And I've been known to uh, write the odd column or piece of commentary expressing some views. Thank you so much. Uh, kia ora koutou. Um, really great to be back on here again. Um, ko aeau, uh, ko Jack Ndoku ingoa, a huri tēnei nō Ngāti Kaununu ki Ritaunga, Ngāti Tūpari Tō, me Ngāpui Hoki. Uh, engari i nohoana au ki Tāmaki Makaurau. Um, bye. Yeah, so kia ora, I'm Jackie, uh, based here in Tāmaki. Uh, I'm, now that I've returned home back to Aotearoa, I'm full-time, usually based at um, Te Pariwananga o Wairaka, uh, working for Ngāwaia Tatui, the Māori and Indigenous Research Centre, uh, and teach part-time in the School of Architecture. On top of that, I guess side, you know, side hobbies, um, <laughs> I uh, work in the Urban and Development Planning Committee for Kainga Ora, uh, have recently kind of joined the uh, Human Rights Commission and supporting the housing inquiry uh, at the moment uh, and then some other design mahi within the housing space so yeah similar to Jade <laughs> work across many spheres um, but yeah I guess huge interest in terms of housing and large-scale urban development across Aotearoa uh, both research policy and design so yeah really great to be able to uh, share space and platform today to kōrero about the many things that I'm sure you'll share today. Kelda. I just thought I'd add, because I did a um, rubbish job of introduction, is that I'm also on the Auckland Urban Design Panel um, for the Tamaki Regeneration Panel, and I'm um, one of the claimants for Y2750, the Kaupapa Inquiry into Housing, currently before the Waitangi Tribunal. And I'm sure there's a few other things that are relevant, but just when Jackie was talking, I was like, oh, there's a couple of things I might want to mention. Well, I'm sure an hour will be um, more than enough time to cover just everything. Uh, given given uh, those lists. Hey, thank you both so much uh, for coming on. Such a, a wealth of experience and knowledge. Um, and yeah, really appreciate you both making time um, from incredibly busy schedules uh, to come and talk uh, with our audience this evening. Um, there have been a, a number of really uh, big housing announcements um, over the last two or three weeks. And the one I wanted to start with because it's the one which has probably got the most media time so far. Um, 
possibly on some part because it, it came through um, as a bipartisan agreement between Labor and National, was the fast tracking of the NPS UD um, legislation. Um, now, I'm, I'm absolutely not expert at that at all. Um, so if either of you are able to give our audience like a, a simple um, explanation of what that is, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I was about to say, conveniently, Kyle, an article came out and stuff today uh, by Jade called New Housing Density Rules Should Not Compromise on Design of Build, which we went through it quite um, well, I thought, and also brought up some issues that we've talked about kind of in passing here before. I think this would be the perfect place to unpack that. Um, yeah, so Jade, give us a give us a rundown. Okay, Kofi. So simply, the National Policy Statement for Urban Development has brought in a number of new provisions, uh, one of which will apply to the five Tier 1 cities, which include um, Tamaki Makoto, Tfanganui Atara, Ōtautahi, Kirikiroa and Tauranga, so those five. And what that means is that in metropolitan areas and in uh, around transport networks or in you know areas that are located in close proximity to uh, public transport nodes, uh, you cannot restrict the height limits to below six stories. And the other big change uh, being brought in with MPS for urban development is that for um, tier is it oh sorry now I better not forget um it, I think it's tier one two and three so it's basically all of them that uh, removes the requirements around minimum parking except for accessible parking so those are the two biggies that we need to pay attention to and those um will need to be brought into effect or implemented by those territorial authorities so when the MPS for urban development was put in place the date was 2024 Bringing us now, before I bring us to this new legislation, um, just to add that the MPS for urban development also included a number of directives to local councils where they had to assess um, demand, they had to assess capacity and do future growth planning. So that won't affect most kind of, you know, applicants or, or landowners or developers, but that is, has created quite a big amount of work that those um, councils need to do to get ready. And so second to that, this new um, bill that's been brought in that's open for submissions currently uh, is fast tracking that process. So instead of 2024, it needs to be um, in, in effect by 2022. And the other part of that is the medium density uh, residential something or other, <laughs> medium density residential um, like provisions, which will mean that if you, for a single site um, within tier one cities, those five that we mentioned, you can't restrict development um, in terms of if it's up to three stories or three dwellings on a site, that's a permitted activity as a matter of right. Beyond that, you might trigger resource consent provisions. So it's both brought it forward and strengthen it with these additional um, standards. And those additional, um, that additional stuff about three, three dwellings on a site and multiple stories. I mean, you mentioned in your article, but I thought maybe you could go into slightly more detail given your background doing the um, indigenous development kind of stuff that that really helps with like multi-generational households and different models of living that aren't the kind of nuclear family cookie cutter, um, you know, cardboard houses down the street on a hillside mm -hmm. or looking the same model of living, right? And especially- yeah. You know, cities are designed for Pakia, right? But that's how it's become over the over the years. And there seems to go some way to like creating space for more options. 
Yeah, urban planning is essentially a colonial tool and um, it was brought in with that purpose of alienating Māori from their kāinga and from their whenua. And there's a well-documented history of that, uh, not to mention just the Eurocentric norms and values that were brought in with the planning system. However, I think we're on a perhaps a decolonial trajectory with our planning system, which I might maybe that's stating it too strongly, but I think we've had some really innovative, um, you know, late legislation and innovative policy and we're continuing to push in that direction so it doesn't need to remain an ongoing tool for colonization I think we can move in the right direction and um, additionally both the district plan provisions and the building um, you know the building code they're both really oriented towards nuclear families and Pākehā family configurations and it's really hard baked into both of those systems so if you're looking to do larger intergenerational homes that are fit for uh, Māori whānau dynamics and cultural preference it, it means that you're pushing up against what's permitted. So you're ending up with, um, you know, discretionary or restricted discretionary activities. It means that you're um, pushing, pushing up into another class of use for building code in terms of fire, which means that suddenly you have to have all of these new fire provisions, which I'm not saying you don't want to have good fire provisions and, and good fire safety. But those thresholds exist for a reason, and it's because it adheres to the Pākehā whānau norm. And this isn't going to fix all of those things, but I do think being able to have three dwellings on a site as a matter of right really opens up a lot more opportunities for intergenerational whānau living, which particularly will appeal to Māori and Pacifica whānau, but also a wide range of families from different cultural backgrounds, I think, will benefit from this. Um, the last point I wanted to make was just that, you know, we know a lot of Māori and Pacifica whānau live in overcrowded homes, but I would say that those overcrowded homes they're actually because the homes are not fit for purpose so a lot of those whānau would want to live with that amount of people in their home and would want to live in a home that could accommodate that many people safe safely and comfortably but that type of housing either doesn't exist isn't available in if by chance it is available it's well beyond the price that's that that's reasonable for you know a family that's on a lower income I'm thinking of those mentions houses where there's like one person lives in there and you could really really wonderfully accommodate a family of 20 um, but instead they're crammed into a three-bedroom house that's moldy and decaying and so um, again won't solve all of those quality and affordability issues but I do think the most exciting part about this new legislation is that opportunity for multi-generational whanau living. Yeah, kia ora. Um, and I loved, I loved how you brought up like urban design, urban quality amenity stuff, because I feel like this conversation, like this is a conversation we had with Jackie last time as well. Um, it all gets kind of railroaded into this, this sort of constructed binary between um, NIMBYs and YIMBYs, like the urbanists and the kind of rich millionaires who don't want their neighbourhoods to change. And that's a very kind of confected way of looking at local government and policy, right? Um, I thought maybe we could bring Jackie in on this because of her recent ambitious work on the Green Ministry of Works stuff with Max Harris, because um, that just shows how limited that kind of imagination has become. It's like the the like local body and housing imaginary has been const constrained so much, especially you know since the last Ministry of Works went and uh, the um, neoliberal turn, etc. But it's really just foreclosed all of these options like you're talking about jade like these these kind of like reconfiguring the way society lives is such a bigger project than just looking at one one tool or two tools like you're saying um jackie so yeah what did, what did you think about your enormous <laughs> gargantuan but like very exciting project how's that been taken up yeah i think there's a lot to unpack just from your <laughs> uh 
own conversation there. I think firstly, I uh, just wanted to speak, I guess, to the NPS and the technical details that Jade already, you know, and I think it's been a lot of the discussion at the moment has been really high level and very technical. I guess for me, when, when that came out, actually, I was thinking about, you know, what is the impact that this will have on our Māori communities? And I know Jade alluded to a lot of it. And, and what are the implications for whānau, um, given the reality that actually in terms of concentration, we don't live in high density and there aren't any examples extensively across Aotearoa which adopt living in high density. Uh, there is room for exploration and innovation for um, iwi and hapu too you know, building design at the scale. But the reality is with the metropolitan areas is that actually Māori don't own a lot of that space. And so what are the implications, especially around private owners, right? Actually, the reality is for them to deliver, to, you know, affordable housing, intermediate housing. Actually, I'm not convinced that that's going to set up and serve to the extent for our communities. I mean, I guess that, you know, it speaks to the wider system and the way in which, you know, some of the economic and financial settings around, you know, the value of space um, and the reality of, you know, one to two bedrooms. And so because they're having to operate within that market-oriented model, I'm not, until there are, you know, practical solutions that demonstrate the way in which certain tools have enabled density and support communities, especially on the other end, you know, lower quartile, uh, I don't think that it's a um, sustainable model if that's whether, you know, Dianetas. So I, always, I have all these questions and it's a conversation that I've had with um, other researchers. Yeah, what does it mean for whānau who do live intergenerationally? Um, you know, the reality of having to live in density. Medium density, very different context um, because we've kind of shifted into that space. Um, I like that Jade already spoke around um, culturally responsive design around form and function. And again, there are opportunities in some models that demonstrate the flexibility internally for walls to collapse, to expand, etc. Um, I think, again, the, and we could have a conversation about this around land, <laughs> in its own kind of entirety and what does that look like um i think the other one that perhaps is an elephant in the room and is sometimes touched on but is around air it's not discussed who owns the air right because we're increasing and because it's based on land and so i think that's that'll be kind of topical i think internationally it's spoken about um and then again i know uh local government have kind of put some local government and councils have spoken around the capacity to deliver infrastructure to support this extensive growth, given the current kind of um, funding or no funding, perhaps, um, to support from central government. So how might they work? Again, just thinking around the political economics of that. Uh, but then I guess, you know, there's that, or, and perhaps just around the COVID stuff in this context around decentralization, actually, are we convinced that people want to be able to live in these, you know, increasingly um, densified and intensified areas? Um, internationally, we're seeing shifts again to uh, suburbia. Uh, but I think, again, you know, through this kind of conversation around Ministry of Green Works and the way in which we've learned historically, more, you know, yes, more, more tools of colonisation. But how can we learn from that? Um, you know, the only way in which um, Māori prior, I guess, to European settlement is around, you know, for Māori who were in, in home ownership, it was significant large-scale government intervention um, and government building directly. We do not do that at the moment. We outsource to the private sector and we continue to function in models that essentially think about the market <laughs> 
addressing these concerns. The reality is, uh, you know, neoliberalism has not served <laughs> our communities, uh, but there's an opportunity for us to think about land and housing and infrastructure um, in a more integrated system. So really large scale systemic stuff, uh, a lot of opportunity, but I think these are still kind of incremental, you know, approaches as opposed to I reckon systemic changes that we um, need. So definitely a step towards in the right direction, but a lot, still a lot of work for us to do. Hope that was a summary. Yeah, thank, thanks for that, both of you. Um, just, yeah, as I said at the outset, um, you know, an hour won't be enough um, to get through all, all the different questions um, that are raised and, or even, you know, just the history or the future um, or the direction um, of some of these changes. You've, you've both kind of uh, implied or alluded to the fact that, you know, this is the, the first step um, in the direction or it, it has potential. Um, we had a lot of people touting the fact that Labour and National making this bipartisan um, was a very important step and that you know, they're less likely to scale stuff back um, if, if power was to change hands. Do you think there's, as, do, do you think, first of all, that that is a significant uh, difference to how things have uh, occurred um, in history so far? And if so, do you think that's enough to get us past some of these other challenges uh, that might come out of competing um, ideologies or competing directions? Oh, I'll go. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I'm a little bit of a cynic when it comes to this bipartisan agreement thing. I'm like, well, that all sounds great. Love to see it. Um, glad you're on the same page. But um, this is only one piece of, of many responses required to address our housing crisis. And I think some of the bigger issues are maybe ideological ones around whether housing is in fact a human right and whether our housing situation is a human rights issue um, and issues around quality and affordability and security um, beyond just supply. And of course, those other matters around quality of um, urban environments and, and quality of, of the living environments. So I guess I'd like to see broader um, cross-sector agreement or you know broader agreement between at least the two major parties if not the rest of them that would be great too um and i thought the this didn't include national unfortunately and maybe that's why it didn't get too much um, traction but i thought for its flaws i thought the cross-party accord that they did with uh labor maori party and greens around homelessness was kind of helpful like i actually think that was a step in the right direction um and so if you could kind of get that degree of cross-party support, especially with the two main parties and on a range of issues, including some of that ideological stuff, I think we'd be on better footing. So I'd say it's not enough, but it's it's kind of helpful. Yeah, I think just building on that, and we know, you know, historically the inherent relationship between successive governments and those who are essentially... Uh, making the decisions and the influence of, you know, how much public housing we have or, you know, how much has been sold and, and you know, and so we know that <laughs> lengthy, you know, uh, and I think 
the bipartisan approach will be essential to addressing the, the broader systemic change that is required, as Jade mentioned. Uh, but I don't think it should be limited to just housing. Same thing on poverty, um, yeah, homelessness as well, um, child poverty, and all these kind of larger issues, but it is underpinned by, yeah, you know, values and principles that are perhaps not commonly shared across parties. And I guess we could speak to the broader conversation around constitutional issues that I'm sure Jade would love to <laughs> um, speak to um, on this issue. But, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a demonstration of the flawed kind of system that we have to currently live in. Um, the cycles just do not work and this current system fails to address it even more so for Māori. So, yeah, I think it's definitely big scale stuff, but also notwithstanding the awesome mahi that is actually, you know, being carried out as well. Um, Across, across sectors and, and many Māori who are operating within institutions and organisations um, centrally uh, and starting to work, you know, with um, many Māori across the housing sector even more so. So I think more of that, more, you know, around more collaboration. I think I heard Wally Tiaho speak about in his, um, one, one of the whariwānanga, but yeah, more collaboration and less competition and that kind of approach. So. I feel like that's exciting, but it needs to be filtered across the way in which the system functions in its entirety. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems is that this stuff is ideological, right? That we'd like we'd like everything to be um twisting the dial on technocracy until everything's perfect, but it's not. Like there's a there's a reason that people join right-wing parties instead of left-wing parties or vice versa. They have different values and that translates into different policies that they want. Um and I think the reason you can get to a place where Labour and National will have, you know, not identical, but similar views on densification stuff is that they have different ideological, but, but matching sort of reasons to be going in a parallel direction. And it's that stuff around um, densification can work for the right as well as it can work for the left. It's not a, it's not like a, a single axis, as I was saying before, right? Um, density is good on, on a bunch of measures but one of the people it's extremely good for is property developers right they make millions of dollars off this off this stuff and they'd love to not be taxed more and they'd love to not have to pay to um, bring properties up to code and they'd love to deregulate everything and be able to build their way and just keep increasing house prices forever and that's probably not our vision for a denser uh more kind of livable society right but you can kind of construct these weird alliances between different um, institutional and kind of political actors. And I guess that's what we're going to have to do just for, for brute numbers. That's, that's politics, you know, but yeah, I think, I think the kind of the conversations about design gets treated by some of those more kind of hard nosed, like economistic um, technocrats as, as a bit fluffy, like the, the sorts of things that I've read you both bring up before that I think are like, central to this whole discussion um it's frustrating when that gets kind of held as sort of a different question from the the brute kind of like density question or the brute kind of development question like you know bernard hickey but much as he's good on a lot of things seems to ignore a lot of these kind of questions around um you know basic standard of living like amenities or um cultural processes that will mean this housing is actually livable like you can't just build a million identical houses, put them into a society that has a real kind of living framework and kind of complex system going on and expect everything to work out using the magic of economics. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I'm not anti-economics, but that's mm -hmm. just, it's simplistic. Sorry, Jake, go ahead. 
I was just going to say, I think part of the problem is a communication one. So actually, most of these outcomes that we're describing um, are measurable, and you can absolutely report against them. And I think part of the problem is that well, I don't know who I'm putting the blame on, but I would say, you know, as a as built environment professionals, perhaps we don't communicate that well enough. And so it's not well understood even by policymakers, although perhaps some people within MFE have got more of a clue because they're probably planners and environmental people. Anyway, I guess the point I'm making is that it's not fluffy at all. It's actually really um, can be measured, um, can be clearly defined, and it's a communication problem. So people don't understand the value because it's not being communicated well. So that's my, my perspective on that. Yeah, totally. I think that's right. I mean, people would have said the same thing around some public health measures five years ago, you know, and then suddenly it makes a huge difference to the way that people live their lives. But again, it sort of comes back to scale. And then, as Jackie was saying before, with the um, Green Ministry of Work stuff, that that is sort of a different question. Like it, it is, that's the other elephant, I suppose, in the room is you can make these changes and it's good to experiment with them. And there are people doing good work, but then what's enough, you know, like, as Kyle was saying before, there's different, the two, the major parties have both, you know, done, done kind of tinkering, technocratic tinkering, and some of it's been good and some of it's been bad. But if we're going to have a um, transformational, to use an over overused word. I, I almost want to disagree just for the sake of it, but um, I actually think it, some, it. some of the things this government have been doing have been radical, but on the low key, like they've, they've put through some really sweeping, massive changes without a lot of you know, fanfare, because I read and submit on everything. Um, you know, some things that you really wouldn't, you're like, oh, wow, I really wouldn't have expected to see that in there, but it's going through, great. <laughs> and some things I think, great, well, if you're willing to make it that radical, I'm going to push you to make it even more radical, because I see you're at a receptive starting point. But I mean, you know, the establishment of crying order, which I know that that had broadly support from both parties, the Urban Development Authority's idea, like, I don't think people realise, and perhaps even still now don't realise, like, as, a, as an urban development authority, crying order's got sweeping powers. They can do so much. Like they can compulsorily acquire land. They can consolidate existing crown land holdings. They can reroute existing infrastructure. Like they can be the consenting authority, resource consents. They can be the building consent authority, which others can as well. You know, there's just so many things that they're able to do. And, um, you know, and I don't think people realize how revolutionary that is. Like that's a big deal. Another one I wanted to talk about was just, um, I know it's recently launched and it's a strategy, not a piece of legislation, but Mikey Car Order, I actually think that's a real game changer. And it actually talks about the articles of Tiasariti. They're always talking about bloody principles, even this <laughs> new NBA exposure draft. So I, my submission, substance of my submission was like, cross out principles and put articles. But now there's actually some precedent for it. And again, I know it's not legislation, but I think that's the next step. So if they're going to be so bold as to include it in a, a key piece of government strategy, why not then translate that into the new RMA system or the new RMA legislation? So there's some cool stuff happening. And I mean, I do think there needs to be some caution about the inclusion of te terms in, in, in Pākehā legislation. And that's another conversation. But I do think there's some pretty revolutionary stuff happening in the legislation and policy space um, that seems to be in some ways going under the radar and just kind of happening. Is that part of that same communication issue that you're talking about previously, but from the government? Or, or do you think they want this to go? Oh, no, I think out? it's strategic. Mm. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, and I think I said this in a different interview, but around, you know, the most significant institutional reforms around the development of the Ministry of Housing and Development 
uh, especially the Māori unit within there, um, and then kāinga ora, you know, and their established Māori teams and leaders, um, and being able to incorporate te tiriti outside of just treaty settlements, right, by embedding it through the way in which their governance and filtering down, but that's because it was written as a statute. Um, and now being able to see um, mahi ka ora, um, when Jade had done it, I had, you know, read it, and obviously I just finished my master's research, and that was really exciting. I don't know if anyone else will get excited about that. <laughs> But you do this piece of work hoping, you know, but then they've already done something like this. this just, it's, it makes me hopeful anyway, right? Um, and it's a reflection of the, the Māori leaders and those who are really willing to change, you know. Um, and I know they're very highly critiqued, um, you know, working in public institutions. But actually, I think there's been some really awesome mahi coming out of there and really... Uh, quick and efficient as well, like really a lot of small wins to be able to get this far. And then, you know, I think the investment into Māori housing, significant. You know, we see it as a benchmark, but I don't think we should think like that. Now, hopefully we continue to see that over the next few years. I wanted to say, um, just because I didn't mention the funding and then when you said it, um, you know, when I did my analysis on that new funding that was announced in May, it on a population basis, it means funding for Māori housing um activities is commensurate with the general population like that's that's huge that's mm -hmm. huge and it's you know before we had enough money for what was it like 40 houses a year and now it's gone up mm -hmm. to 300 or something you know like it's it's a huge step change and again that kind of went through without too much fanfare even though everyone who's involved in Māori housing really paid attention to it I don't and, it, and sometimes it, until you put those numbers in perspective it doesn't seem like a big deal but it's actually a big deal and Hopefully we can only go up from here, like because all and all these things seem to be reasonably well coordinated. So the um, the government policy statement, you know, Maihi Ka Ora, the funding, you know, these are all, and then these other legislative changes around the MPS for urban development, like they're all kind of working quite well together. Mm. Sounds like there's a real core of kind of radical strategy, um, like. Because you know, a lot of this I, I just was unaware of uh, until, like, this moment. Um, I mean, I'm not, like, as I've said, I'm not an expert on any of this, but I tend to keep relatively good track of, of what's going through um, in terms of policy and, and legislatively. Um, but, yeah, it is really heartening to hear that you feel like there's coordination uh, happening across, across government because... And, you know, um, it's been implied in a lot of the talk around uh, NPS um, and even in this conversation, um, you know, it's just it's just one step. Um, but if you've got all these other steps in coordination with that, that's where you start to see some of this change occurring. Mm -hmm. I think, yes, to coordination to some extent. I think the other two real big opportunities are, are to build directly um, and to improve financial mechanisms outside of finan existing financial institutions. Yes, and if I had one criticism that I'll keep hammering home till they finally do the work is reform of kāinga whenua and a really comprehensive um, review and, and I guess overhaul of our financing options for Māori housing. Can you take us through money Yeah. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be really great because um, I, I roughly grasp um, what you're saying, but there may be a lot of people in our audience who don't mm. um, or are unaware of it altogether. 
Mm, yeah, so Kainga Whenua um, was introduced in 2009 and it's the only financial product available for, um, you know, mortgage product available for housing on Whenua Māori. So that's Māori land and Māori freehold land under Tūra Whenua Māori Act 1993. And um, so it was introduced by Housing New Zealand, who was the, um, at the time, underwriter of the loan. So it's government-backed to a degree. And then it's available to any financial institution to offer. And at that time and now, uh, Kiwi Bank was the only one to pick it up. And so uh, as a result of that and a number of problems with the product itself, the uptake's been reasonably low and it hasn't been particularly successful. Um, Some of the problems include the fact that um, the way the tripartite agreement is worded, that it means that you um, need to have a license to occupy as your tenure instead of an occupation order to the point where like Māori land court judges are questioning it and don't realise that requirement. So I had a whanonga go before court was it this year or last year? It was recently. And the judge was like, why are you going for a license to occupy? Why don't you go for an occupation order? She's like, because I want a mortgage. <laughs> like, and the judge didn't even realize. And the judge is like, what? Like, the, the judge was like, how is this happening? Do people know about this? And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, why doesn't the judge know? That's so concerning. Anyway, and so you hear about those things happening. Um, and then you hear about, there's also the issue where it can't be less than 70 meters squared. And it also has to be built um, you know, on piles so it can be physically removed in the event of a default. And also there's a lending cap of $200,000, which hasn't been updated, which is just absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also other problems in terms of just the knowledge of lending staff, not good coordination between Kiwi Bank, um, Kainga Order, and the Māori Land Court. Um, but, you know, some of the staff in these regional offices have never dealt with it before, just giving whānau the wrong information or saying no when they're, that's not the case. Anyway, there's just endless problems. Um, but what really needs to happen is, is to do a really comprehensive review of what is actually going on with this product, where, where, where it's working, what are the critical success factors. So I know of some cases where it was successful because the person leading the project was very tenacious. And each time she got told no, which was about 10 times, she said, no, I want to speak to the next person up and refused to take no for an answer because she actually knew the facts. Most people aren't as tenacious as that and they won't keep pushing when people in authority tell them, no, you're not eligible. No, that's not possible. You shouldn't have to push your way on through all of these no's just to get an outcome that you should have been legally entitled to to begin with. Anyway, so there's that. I think they actually need to do the work. It's never been done. They've never done a comprehensive review. And ideally, you'd get to the point where you understand what's working well, where it's worked well, what's not working well, and you'll be able to optimize that kind of phenol product in line with its original policy intent, because I do think there is a role for it. And then I think what this is what I would recommend is um, look across the spectrum, I guess, of Māori housing finance need, understand the different use cases, and then um, work with the banking sector, as well as with yourself as government, as a funder, to fill in all those gaps. So mapping out where those products those grants fit and then where are there gaps that could be bridged with other new products and making sure you've got a really joined up approach and I to be fair I've been advocating for this way of working for like I don't know five years and uh, I just keep yelling at anybody who'll listen and hopefully they'll pick it up I know um, via Tamatapahi we've had another crack with a proposal and apparently it's still on hold but they're going to look at it (laughs) so um, 
anyone who wants to pick it up, that's great because I'd like to see it happen. And why it's so important is because it's, it's, it's important for general title land as well. So I think it should be the whole spectrum. But for Fino and Māori, you, there's, there's no choice and grant funding is the only game in town. And so that might dictate the choices you make around um, around form and might dictate the choices you make around infrastructure. And right now we're in a good position where they're being quite enabling and they're supporting, you know, um, you know, genuine whānau, their processes and, you know, appropriate kind of outcomes. But I just think it's not a good thing when you're beholden to one funder and that is your only choice or this loan product that doesn't work. And so if you need to get the loan product, it means that you might be somewhere where actually um, a home on slab would make so much more sense, would be more affordable, would be firmly more appropriate because, you, anyway, et cetera, et cetera. But you still have to build it up on piles so that they can come and repossess your house, I guess, in case you don't pay your mortgage. I just think that's also really demeaning. Yeah, <laughs> so they can't. They're kind of saying, well, actually, Marty, I think you should live in trailer parks because, you know, you I don't I know you're not good for it. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm being a bit crass, but I just think that's disgusting that that's still the prevailing attitude. And the other point I wanted to make um, is that in, in the United States, they've got the Section 184 mortgage guarantee and they it's essentially their equivalent of our product. And I know they have different legislation, but they had essentially the same problem. And they fixed it pretty quickly. And what they do is they securitize it against the leasehold interest in the land, which is 30 years with 30 years uh, right of renewal. But what I'm suspecting is that their license or their lease arrangement is stronger than our license to occupy, which is a special kind of residential lease. And also um, perhaps there's something in the way that our underwriting, so that tripartite agreement, the way the underwriting arrangement is put together, that means that that won't quite work here. So what I really want to do is understand exactly what's working there and then figure out how we can pick that up here and make changes that we need to, whether it's changes to the Whenua Māori Act or whether it's changes to this tripartite agreement and the nature of the underwriting, um, not sure, but love to see that happen. It sounds like a really key systemic node in the, in the entire thing. Like it, it was just so much wrapped up in this seemingly simple, um, you know, financial, I guess just financial product. Um, especially the stuff around having to be built on piles is just, I can't, I can't imagine that policy being brought in now and sliding in any, any way. And yet it's still in action. So we're just, yeah. just letting it slide on through. That was really, yeah. Thanks so much for describing all those things. This is something we need to remember to do more is describe what we're actually talking about to the listeners before we jump ahead and get too excited. Um, so I thought, could we also do, Jackie, could you maybe talk us through Mahi Kaora? Because you said you're excited um, about it. Well, essentially, it's the National Māori Housing Strategy that has been designed and delivered in partnership with Māori, um, led by um, M. Hyde in partnership with Tipuni Kōkiri. Um, it identifies many things and builds off the back of the Māihi um, framework that was, was that 2019, Jane? And oh, was it? in the 2020, the framework as well. Oh, yes, my hair. Um, probably. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. been around for a couple of years. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what year we're in. But anyway, um, and so that that, in, that was the initial framework that was set out, which is the, um, and then that secured for, I think, 40 million, 30 or $40 million in the budget 2020. And then they built on that to review the existing, oh, review, um, <laughs> the previous Māori housing strategy, and then reviewed and uh, released the new one. And so hopefully that's just a quick overview. It's probably more 
encourage the uh, listeners to go and read it extensively um, and you'll interpret it. But yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, it's exciting, you know. I wanted to add one thing, which is that one, and why, why I'm also excited by this new strategy is, um, unfortunately, with Hefaru Ahuru, our previous strategy, they had this um, fabulous strategy, but they didn't put any resourcing to it. So there wasn't people who were dedicated to its implementation, and there wasn't ongoing monitoring and evaluation. Whereas with Maiheka Order, it's built into the strategy, and there has been money tagged for it. And so as long as that doesn't wheels off the cart a little bit later, at the moment, it's all looking really good. It's all been provisioned for, and there's opportunities to continually test and refine and make sure that we're on the right track and adjust as needed. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of a continual improvement model, which means that the strategy should remain active and living and, and relevant, uh, which sadly the previous strategy, which should still be running, um, didn't. And that was purely because of the way it was set up. So there was no risk accountability or responsibility for its implementation, which I think we're in a very different position with um, Mahi Kaora. Yeah. And I really like that the strategy sets out, you know, timeframes and actions and accountability and implementation, which hopefully we'll see soon around um, some of the monitoring plan. And I think even just the way in which um, they've developed the Fariwananga as an approach and as a model essentially to um, support the specific mahi and oversee um, how, how it will work and who is doing what, but also a place to share as well, share knowledge, you know, who um, who, who is working with each other to see how, what are the challenges that they're having and, and who's putting their hand up to help, you know, um, given the kind of issues uh, across across Aotearoa. So, yeah, I, I think it's a really great kind of outline, um, especially around the spine review and reset kind of components. It's really clear around what they're trying to achieve. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully it will have, um, you know, beneficial uh, long-term outcomes for many Māori now and moving forward. Um, I know we're not there yet, but something I do hope might be where some of this is going is around devolution of crown function. So we're seeing that with Oranga Tamariki, we're seeing that with MSD, and I know that's not happening uniformly, but in other sectors, we're seeing it with health, we're actually starting to see those functions being devolved to iwi or to Māori entities. And I do think the way that um, Mahi Ka Ora is, is structured and also the way the funding program, um, you know, Whai Kauinga Whai Oranga is structured, there's opportunity for that to occur. Obviously, I've got a lot of reservations around things being, you know, sitting with iwi because there's the risk that it doesn't have a good connect back to Hapun Fano. But putting those reservations aside for the moment, I do think that the next final frontier will be actually handing this stuff over. I think that's... Um a really important thing to keep in mind as well, right, is that you don't often know um, what government intent is unless they've baked resource into a strategy or into a framework. Um, and you see so many different reviews, investigations, etc., cetera, um, which are undertaken and maybe take one or two years and then, you know, just are put on the back burner um, or are talked about vaguely and, and nothing really moves. And so whenever I hear that the resourcing is actually part of the strategy, it's an integral part of what they're trying to do, that gives me hope in itself um, and that there is political will um, and not, not just at the you know, executive level, but administrative level as well uh, to a large extent because they, if nothing else, they want to continue having that resource. Um, so I, I think that's, yeah, really a really good sign. I don't know if this is a conversation you thought you were going to have. But... <laughs> I came with no expectations. It never is. That's the benefit of having <laughs> smart people on. 
um <laughs> yeah but you're but you're both like jumping into the the next kind of thing that i was excited to ask about which is like barriers and possibilities um and it's surprising and exciting i think already that you're coming up with positives in the sector instead of negatives which is what we've been having from most people and yeah like kyle and i aren't housing nerds we uh read the news and are just relatively well informed compared to most humans but we're not you know we can't compare ourselves to people who actually spend their time um on the on the kind of micro specifics in the in the sector so it's always amazing to hear that things are actually better than you'd you'd thought based on kind of trajectory of where things were going i mean we were at a pretty dire yeah level <laughs> like so let, let's let's not skirt around the fact that our housing situation is is quite ex- extremely bad like housing House- stock is dire housing prices are out of house control. prices are still where they are yeah <laughs> exactly. yeah you no know, one can afford any of them like no one can afford to live because housing costs are such a huge part of you know accents and then our cities are not well planned so fuel poverty is a real issue people's ability to get places is a real issue houses are unhealthy like you could just go on but i mean i think plenty of i think we know these issues and i i don't want to um you know skirt around them because these are the real things that affect people's lives but i also think we do have reasons to be hopeful for the direction of where things are moving i think it's something that's often missed as well you know we, we have covered um you know, other housing issues uh, in previous content here as well. Um, and our audience will be generally aware of them. But you also need something to focus on if there is optimism to be had. You need to be able to provide direction or uh, avenues uh, along which people can say, okay, look, there's a, there's a thing we can focus on and organize around uh, if, if we do want things to go in a better direction. Yeah, um... Tamitha Paul and Thomas Nash wrote an article in the spinoff um, a couple of days ago, um, which was Wellington specific, but I think links to a lot of the issues that we've been um, talking about. And in some ways, I think Wellington is kind of ahead of the game in their um, housing activism, better than Auckland in some ways, it seems anyway, um, because they're sort of tr- starting to connect these things in ways that I haven't yet seen um, people on the ground kind of do here. It's probably, you know, harder because of lockdown and harder because of more disparate communities and different kind of um effects showing itself in different ways but yeah I thought that's that's been quite exciting it's the sort of thing I've been wanting for the last decade I suppose and just feels like it's been quite slow coming like uh, Jackie we talked to you about some of the housing activism stuff last time where do you see the energy going um I think firstly Wellington's a different kind of context to Tamaki and given that I guess you know Tamata being uh, in well and Thomas and the kind of Wellington City Council around their kind of social housing stock right very different very different um, social fabric uh, but I think it is yeah it's energizing seeing young people and I think people have just had enough you know it's so fucking expensive just all oh, expensive so it's so expensive no, swear more it's a podcast split, you know it's and <laughs> like everyone is just trying to get by and I'm like I'm wondering if we're gonna feel this momentum too much for house prices you know it's not unusual there are many cases internationally and in climate change and so I'm, I'm wondering whether people will just get fed up and the reality is our generation in this current trajectory will be renters um, or even more so living, you know, in the severe conditions with housing stress. So I'm wondering if that's kind of where we're headed at this stage because I don't see anything changing in terms of, you know, 
mental um, controls and obviously that's highly debated. Um, but I think that's where the biggest change always comes from, right? I, pressure. I think it might change now that the, 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 the scales are you know tipping in terms of how many people are renters and how many people actually own property. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to get harder to maintain the status quo. And I think we are going to see more I shouldn't say revolutionary uprising. That's probably promising too much. But I think we'll see more people. You know. <laughs> I do think we'll see more of a movement um, towards stronger rental protections. I thought the, um, I shouldn't speak on it because I'm not well informed, but I'm bring it up anyway. I thought the stuff that we heard recently in Berlin was very interesting, um, particularly around corporate um, ownership of housing, which, you know, could be where we're starting to go here in this country. Um, and I guess people often think, oh, Berlin, they've got great rental situations. And, and so on but I just think um you know I think we should look to what's happening overseas especially these kind of people people's movements and maybe also look to who are our ministerial champions who might actually be able to get a bill through <laughs> yeah I mean that's um, a really big one right um, sorry yeah. I shouldn't, that, that was a bit snarky really but I just mean I think <laughs> some of our best champions that would absolutely draft this kind of bill might not be able to get it introduced no I mean know. it's a it's a fair fair comment I think um especially with labor at um, you know, an absolute majority. We had a piece up on the website from Max Harris about the Berlin situation, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is something that I, I'm, I think I'm with Jade on the scale saying to tip, you know, we're hitting, we're up over 30% of people are renting now. Um, that's a significant electorate if someone wants to do something with it. Uh, for me, the the major tipping point will be around electoral will um because so far uh no like my major minor party has even been really willing to jump on that um and i don't think labor or national will because essentially they're propertied um electoral classes um more, more than anything else um but once we I think once that starts to creep into the discourse, it'll be very, very hard. Um, and I mean, the electoral discourse is obviously already like being talked about a lot in, in some progressive circles and um, housing advocate circles. But once, you know, you get a, either a, a Labour associate minister um, or some Labour stalwarts, maybe in the media or, or elsewhere, um, talking should, about should, it. Should pressure Peeny if he's going to be the minister uh, yeah. of Marty Housing. Yeah, get in, get in. <laughs> Um, yeah, hundred percent. We need we need more champions for for housing yeah. I think, who are a bit bolder to speak about this kind of stuff because it seems like they're they're trying to tread some kind of middle line that they've you know decided is the middle line in their head that they're willing to do. And we need someone without that um, that instinct. I think we need someone who's just going to stand up and and fight someone. Which you know that's not how you get very high in the Labour Party, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but like the the Berlin thing's interesting, I think because the major pushback against it when it happened here. And there were a few people started to get excited about it. There were people from um, kind of liberals and right-wingers both trying to say that, oh, New Zealand's different. New Zealand's a country of mum and dad investors. Um, people who own houses here, they'll only have, you know, one one landlord, one house that they're the landlord of, and it's more kind of disparate, um, which to an extent I think is true compared to Berlin because it does have this very centralised, corporatized. Um, but efficient kind of rental model traditionally, even though that seems like that's broken down a bit over the last couple of decades. But anyway, our um, Paul Calland, who does some economics writing for us, 
um, has been looking into this just recently and just did a tweet the other day. Go and look at his Twitter if you're listening to this. Um, and he was finding that although that is true, that most landlords here are disproportionately small landlords, that doesn't mean that most houses that are being rented out are being rented out by landlords with only one or two properties, right? Because that's the way that central that inequality works is that there are still a few landlords with huge power in the market and who have an enormous amount of properties, hundreds of properties. Um, and you can have most landlords with uh, one property and still have it the case that although that's a plurality of landlords, a small number of landlords can have the majority of rental housing. So that's just something to bear in mind when people bring up the mum and dad landlords thing, right? Was it over 60% um, uh, owned by the top 10%? This is, Kyle, this is Paul's tweet that he just did the other day. I've recently dug into data on New Zealand rental property ownership. Despite talk of mum and dad landlords, it shows just 6% of landlords own over 60% of rentals. Under 1,000 landlords, less than 1% own at least 25%. That's huge concentration and shows recent bill and proposals would be relevant here. Um, and then there's some specific data stuff you can dig into if you if you can be bothered. But yeah, um, I think the gist of that is is pretty terrifying. Considering that like how successfully the landlord lobby has us talking about um, mum and dad landlords, right? Well, we're really good at mum and dad, you know, X, Y, Z here. They're controlling the narrative. So I think you just need to take it back. <laughs> yeah. So how do, how do we do that though? Thing. Yeah, mm. it's a communication <laughs> thing, right? And in terms of like, it's the same thing around sharing information and telling people mm. the reality because otherwise it's dominated by, you know, it's dominated by those people who are holding space and, and shaping, yeah, the narrative. Because when they talk about mum and dad investors, they're appealing to shared values. And so for those that might be um, voting or influencing what happens in these matters, they'll go, oh, well, that's like me. And, you know, what's wrong with that? Whereas it's actually kind of shielding um, the bigger players and sort of enabling them. And yeah, so I think how you tell the story is really important. And um, maybe the property lobby has been uh, too, too much of a dominant voice. I think we're, we're just about coming up to time. Um... You know, we've veered all over the place. We, we did say that this was going to try and cover a lot of stuff in a, in a very short amount of time. Um, I think we've done pretty well. Um, but were there any final thoughts um, on direction or on hopes uh, that you both wanted to add before we close off? Yeah, I think just quickly for me, and I mentioned before two of them, so really around design, again, improving design form uh, as we continue to increase our density um, in the cities and a reflection of Māori identity even more so in decolonising our natural environment. Second one is around building directly uh, in order to address the significant need uh, for more so on the lower quartile uh, and uh, for our low socioeconomic uh, communities. Uh, yeah, significant government intervention uh, which thinks about uh, infrastructure and climate change and the way in which we shaping our cities. And then the last one is improving our uh, financial mechanisms to support uh, whānau who are wanting to, yeah, build not only on their whenua, but also uh, across, you know, Aotearoa. So being able to think about how the current financial institutions and systems, um, you know, create further barriers to uh, some of these aspirations. So, yeah, those are my three. Design, build and finance. My points are the same as Jackie's, but I'll just say them different. <laughs> so, um, actually, no, before I do that, just cut this bit out, but it was really funny. One day my dad came to visit and I put this podcast on in the car and there was the introduction where they were explaining who this person is, blah, blah, blah. And my dad was like, is this about you? And I was like, 
close. It was about Jackie. <laughs> oh, no. Because <laughs> they didn't say your name. They were just, you know, oh, this yeah. and that. And that's like. <laughs> I don't know. I think we should leave that in. I don't know if we should cut that. So I'm happy to. I'm happy to. Yeah. Oh, no, I don't care. I just thought it was funny. because no, Well, the other happy. line is they need some new hobbies. <laughs> oh, yeah, we do need some new hobbies. We so if any- hob- and we are taking recommendations. <laughs> If anyone listening, (laughs) have you tried podcasting? Um, You know, I I find it really rewarding. Yes, I have, and I'd love someone to give me more money to keep making podcasts. (laughs) You heard it here, folks. (laughs) Oh yeah, so Indigenous Urbanism podcast. If anyone's um, got some money that they have access to and love to invest in great independent journalism and you know telling some of our stories about the built environment get in touch um anyway I should say my parting thoughts which one of them really is just um to reinforce that point around design quality so I think you know we're in a fast-moving space it's really great moves towards intensification and I think what it's really important not to lose sight of quality of the public realm and quality of of urban form um something I got really excited about that I only heard about recently but I'll 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 talk about because I mentioned it in the article today was this idea of form-based codes as an as an alternative to conventional rules-based or like zoning zoning um it's just an alternative planning mechanism and so i'm far from the expert in this but i think it provides the opportunity to more focus on the building envelope focusing on the public realm and maintaining design standards for those areas whilst kind of letting people do what they want to do within the building envelope and it means that you get um a really good quality urban form but you can get a variety of architectural outcomes and you're less uh, concerned about building use and, and activities which is really the focus of our current system and you're less less focused on things like setbacks height limits and um you know and 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 site coverage so i think it's well worth a look especially now we're entering a new frontier so maybe the more zoning based planning made sense for where we were at previously where we had a lot of low intensity low you know single family dwellings maybe some medium density but not a lot no high density almost at all except in you know maybe Auckland CBD but you know we're in it we're moving into a different space and so it might mean that we need different tools and don't forget about design quality because it's not it's it's not an add-on or 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 just an additional expense that's you know uh, you know aside from the core objective of providing housing for people I think it's a mistake to think in that way I think it's really important to think about design as something that improves the quality of our lives and really has a tangible um, impact on the way we live our lives, whether it's where we, where, where we um, you know, reside, whether it's where we work, where we play, the spaces that our kids have access to, um, the spaces that we walk through and experience and where we form community and have interactions and all of these things that make up a life worth living, design has the ability to have a huge impact on that. And so we shouldn't forget that as we look to densify our urban environments. And secondly, just don't forget where you are in the world. And so um, this is really picking up Jackie's point, but really critically engaging with the cultural landscape, um, working very early on in any development process or plan making process with mana whenua and seeking to recognize that relationship to where we are in the world and seeking to express those narratives and values and also to have a regenerative impact. Um, One of the big things for most mana whenua groups (laughs) who have that responsibility within their here is that there's been mass environmental degradation in the name of development and what they really want to see is for our harbors to be swimmable and drinkable again they want to see you know native species brought back and biodiversity brought back they want to see streams daylighted and, and healthy they want to see you know things that have been filled in you know brought out again and and 
brought back to the natural state. They want to see wetlands restored. And so all of these things have been done in the name of colonization and development. But I think we've got an opportunity to honor, honor mana whenua, and, but also to, um, you know, improve the quality of our environments and, and health for ourselves. Like, do we really want to be living in a, a landfill that was a tip, you know, or, or next to a harbor that's, you know, horribly poisoned and now you can't, you know, swim there or, or go near it? You know, do we want to have poor air quality? I don't think we do. Um, so those are my parting thoughts. Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, both of you. Um, been really great to have you on here to unwrap and unwind uh, some of the, the details around what's going on in the uh, wider housing conversation. To everyone who's enjoyed this, um, who or where, rather, uh, can they find you? Um, where can you find me? Well, you can find me on Twitter at jade underscore kake. And then we also have a, a website for the business, which is matukohe.co.nz. Um, I've got a website, my writing, which is jadekake.com. And um, if you look up indigenousurbanism.net, you can listen to the podcast um, and also find out some more information about it. I think those are all the links. <laughs> You can find me on Twitter at Jackie Paul with two A's, so J-A-A-C-K-I-E-P-A-U-L. Um, and I think Twitter is more than enough than you'll need. <laughs> Kia ora. Hey, thanks again so much. So go and follow them both. Um, heaps of good stuff to say, lots of good information there. If you've enjoyed this um, and you think it's worth sharing, uh, send it to your friends and family. Uh, let people know that these conversations are happening in independent media. Um, you don't just have to read the paper or, or watch the news. There's a lot of other stuff out there uh, to help inform you about what's happening. Um, and it's often got a clearer, more concise, or maybe not more concise, um, but a different perspective uh, at the very least. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism Oh, you don't hate Mondays